0: kevin barrett you're listening to truth jihad radio putting out samizdat broadcasts and writings from the heart of occupied north america if you like this kind of radio please go to truthjihad.com and make sure you're on the subscription list by way of the subscribe at substack button welcome this is the special live edition of truth jihad radio i'm kevin barrett waging the all-out struggle for truth on the internet airwaves since 2006 i've appeared on a long list of networks and this one revolution.radio may be the greatest of all it is certainly the best free speech listener-sponsored network standing up for total freedom of speech no overton window closing on you uh, we can say pretty much what we want here on Revolution.Radio. Please support Revolution Radio any way you can. And while you're at it, you can always help me out by way of my website, TruthJihad.com, where you can subscribe to these shows, get early access and free downloads. And that way you can listen early to great shows like this. If you miss the live broadcast today, I'm bringing on two leading lights, in my opinion, anyway, of the Canadian freedom movement, two very important authors In the second hour, Ray McGinnis is the author of Unanswered Questions, What the September 11th Families Asked and the 9-11 Commission Ignored. Now, Ray is a uh, a successful uh, religious author and never did anything uh, on the red pill world before. But this book is a really good introduction for relatively normal Uh, blue pill people to the 9-11 issues. And Ray McGinnis has also published a new article on the Freedom Convoy and the Collapse of Canadian Liberalism about the issues that we'll be touching on in the first hour as well. That is how Canada turned into a COVID dystopia, even worse than the United States. Yeah, it looks that way. Okay, let's get going in the first hour. Our important author in the first hour is John Manley. He just published a terrific novel called Much Ado About Corona, and I didn't expect to be in a big hurry to read it. It's uh, 500 plus pages, but once I started it, it's, hey, uh, the cliche is true. I couldn't put it down. It's really a a great read. Um, It's got tragic dimensions, but it's actually a really good fictional world to immerse yourself in. Uh, even though the fictional world is the Canadian COVID dystopia at the height of the COVID scamdemic. But thanks to John's uh, humor, his mastery of descriptive detail, and above all, his fantastic characterization, these people really come alive a little more lively, actually, than a few uh, real world people I've run into. (laughs) It's a great alternative reality. To, and that's that's what novels really are all about in a way is, you know, can a novelist uh, succeed in creating an alternative reality that you want to immerse yourself into and that you can't put down? You want to keep getting back into and you're learning from and enjoying and laughing at and uh, feeling the tragic emotions, all of that stuff. Hey, this novel really works. So, hey, I think we probably have John on the line by now. Let's find out. Hey, welcome, John. How are you?
1: Oh, good. I, well, I think I got monkeypox, but it might just be mosquito bites. I haven't had yet.
0: You know, I, where we live here, outside of Lone Rock, Wisconsin, in the Wisconsin River Valley swamps, you'd never know if you had monkeypox during mosquito season.
1: Everybody looks like they have monkeypox most of the time.
0: Uh, it's it, well, we it sure feel like it anyway, uh, scratching and swatting. Uh, but wow, so you you actually uh, you're, you're you've got mosquitoes up there in northern Ontario too
1: yeah it's warm enough right now they're they're coming out i think they i, I just started seeing them about a, a week or two ago in uh
0: volumes yeah yeah that's that's uh one of the many reasons that uh some people in my family are interested in possibly uh finding a more congenial climate but hey i should you know we're we're so far south of you that i mean this is almost like the uh sunny beaches of the mediterranean here uh compared to where you're at i guess uh, if the mosquitoes only came out a week or two ago, my goodness! <laughs> you guys, have, you must have a short summer. <laughs>
1: Sometimes oh, it
0: feels that way. It doesn't start till
1: July, really, and then it, it lasts until the end of September. So.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I've actually spent a little bit of time in Canada, and I kind of like the the light in midsummer. I managed to spend sort of the entire month of June, you know, the solstice season, in uh, mostly in Quebec City. That was how I learned French was by just refusing to speak anything but lousy, crappy French and torturing the poor (laughs) francophone Canadians for a month. Uh, But I have good memories of that. You know, the the descriptive detail of uh, life in this small town in what mid to north Ontario is one of the really cool things about your book. And I, I take it that small town in your book is similar to the one that you live in. Um, actually, it's
1: more similar to the one I used to live in, uh, St. Mary's, Ontario, which is um, a much, I'm, I'm, I'm actually in a city, I mean, it probably looks like a town to Americans. we've got about 32,000 people, so it's a small city, but I used to live in a, a smaller town of, uh, I don't know, what it is 6, 000, 5, 000, it, 6,000, 5,000, two streetlights, St. Mary's, Ontario, I actually began the novel in St. Mary's, Ontario, but I moved it much farther north up to Sudbury, partly because we had that nice intersection between the French Canadian, the English and the indigenous people who live there.
0: Cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's one of the great things uh, about Canada is, is there's a little bit more uh, of that kind of, uh, well, uh, the French side is what actually brought me there. That's why I was, uh, I, I went there, <laughs> spent a month in Quebec, uh, having an, another official language actually appeals to me. But so uh, the, in uh, in, in your book, uh, you've well, you mentioned that you were inspired uh, a little bit by, uh, or have, have been influenced by your contact with uh, Islamic uh, poetry, uh, the novel *The Kite Runner*, which I actually haven't read, and even the TV show oh. *Little Mosque on the Prairie*. <laughs> uh, so maybe we could we'd start with that. So what what would be the, the connection? Um, and you know, where, how how were you uh, inspired by that stuff? Have you seen Little Mosque on the Prairie? No, I just I saw a couple of trailers and I read about it, but I never actually watched it.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean that was interesting. You know, I think that was the first time Muslims did a comedy, uh, you know, full-length television comedy. um, As they, I think they quoted in the first episode, Muslims were not famous for their humor, but um, um, and actually, I I think in a lot of ways that had quite a bit of the um, the Canadian feel to its comedy. But uh, no, I would say. like i think the main, one of the main things that i think i took away from um well i guess it, like when i mentioned the poetry and stuff i wouldn't say that had a direct influence on the novel itself other than i you know always been a big fan of um uh especially rumi um I mean, his poetry on um, fasting. I mean, if anyone ever wants to fast, all they have to do is read some of his poetry on fasting, and then that's all you'll want to do is fast. <laughs> he, he makes it he makes it very uh, um, appealing. Um, but no, I, I, when I started this, I wasn't actually expecting it to be, you know, what, what one might call a, ro- a romance story or a love story. It's, you know, the subtitle on this is Much Ado About Corona, uh dystopian love story. Um, and, you know, and, a lot of uh, romance stories that come out today, I would say, are, um, you know, they're probably bordering on soft porn, you know. It's, uh, it's kind of interesting the way um, things have changed over the years. And I remember particularly when I read The Kite Runner, The Kite Runner, and then also um, you see the same thing depicted in Little Mosque in the Prairie. It was actually depicting and encouraging, which I know is a big thing in Islam, is um what I'd almost call kind of more old-fashioned romance. I mean, stuff that was common in the, um, even in Christian cultures, you know, and particularly the idea that this kind of idea that you date, you get engaged, you get married, and then you have sex. Now we have it all in, you know, completely different order, which, um, I think Islam is one of the few religions that really has stood by that traditional practice. And, um, It's so much more artful. I mean, I find it strange that people want to jump so fast through the courtship process. I mean, that was I I actually studied probably more than watching Little Mouse, Little House, Little Mouse, Little Mosque on the Prairie was the uh, the writer for Little Mosque on the Prairie. She's a Muslim. A lot of the actors on the show are actually not Muslim, but. And one of the things because the show has an ongoing romance between the local doctor and the imam, both of them in the probably mid 20s, early 30s. And she pointed out, you know, one of the reasons that people watched the show for so long was because they kept the romance going for so long, you know, the courtship and so forth, which um, is not very common in American movies these days.
0: Mm-hmm. And I think that works in your book. You keep the romance going for practically the whole 500 pages. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and part of the you know, sense, and it isn't consummated. You know, you're not doing any of that stuff. Uh, that actually, I think, helps helps it continue to sort of build. You know, you it, it gives it a kind of a continuity that just keeps on building in in interest.
1: Yeah, um, and. I mean i and I don't say these things like in a way that you know the chastise people who've decided to live their life differently and in a lot of ways I mean right now life is so confusing with all the mixed messages people get from every type of media you can imagine that you know I'm not even looking at this maybe on more so much as a religious perspective, even though I think a lot you know every religion in the world has encouraged that type of um system, you know, where uh, you select a mate slowly and then get married and have a family. And uh, that, I think, has been under attack for quite a long time. And scientifically, I mean, the amount of studies out there um, showing, you know, the... Um, uh, are you familiar with Mark Gunger? I was curious to know, because you live in Wisconsin, do you not?
0: Uh, yes, I'm sorry, Mark who?
1: Mark Gunger.
0: Gunger? no, I'm not.
1: He's in Green Bay, Wisconsin. I'm not sure how far that... It's from you i i i think you'd really like him he's a, um a christian preacher who's focused mainly on um dating sex and marriage like like is focused and he's actually very jealous of Islam he actually often refers to islam because he he says the Muslims get this, and that's why their population you know they don't have a depopulation issue like we have um and he looks at it very much from a scientific point of view, like they, um, they, you know, they've done all these types of surveys and large scale surveys showing that um, couples who wait until after they're married to copulate have like the lowest divorce rates in the world, mm-hmm. regardless of what their religion is.
0: That, that makes sense, and that 's probably one of the reasons that the divorce latest rate has historically been low in the Muslim world, and unfortunately it has risen somewhat in North America, probably for the, that very reason that uh, some you know people coming out of Muslim families are you know they act like the other people they go to school with and uh, and they they end up culturally being you know just imitating the people around them but but overall it's still considerably lower uh, in in the Muslim world than in most other places. So, yeah, it's interesting. You said that Mark Gunger is is he admits he's jealous of Muslims in Islam, and I think it's great that he can kind of admit it and be conscious of it, and then just you know deal with it in a calm and rational way. Because I really think that part of what drives Islamophobia among the right wing, let's call it uh, you know kind of conservative elements, is jealousy. That is, they uh, are. Angry (laughs) that the Muslims have something (laughs) that they kind of know that they don't have and that they want to get back, and then they kind of you know project their feelings and you know get extra hateful when really you know why 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 bother hating you know why not just say okay the Muslims are doing something right and admit it. (laughs) Well,
1: yeah, I I I think especially even with someone like Mark Gunger and others I've known in the. Um, not only just the Christian community, but um, even non-religious communities, but, I, what, but uh, the Hindu community and so forth, was that it would be better if everyone had kind of, especially on um, different religions, maybe were more competitive instead of jealous, you know, trying to see if I can do it better than you, you know, and my God, God is bigger than is your God. Doing it better. <laughs> Pardon me?
0: Well, that was that general voice, I think, who said, my God is bigger than your God.
1: Um. It, yeah, yeah, I guess it's that tone, and but it wasn't my intention, you know, it's like, um, uh, like I used to belong to a Hindu church for quite a long time. And they realized that they were having a really a lot of trouble with divorce, just like everybody else. So they actually looked to the Mormon church where they found the divorce rate was much lower and said, okay, what are you guys doing that we're not doing? Cause you know, we need some help here. And I, I thought that was a pretty good attitude to have. Um, yeah.
0: Excellent. Huh.
1: So, I mean, it's, I, I kind of like the, you know, that was part of what I was trying to do with the book. I mean, in the book, the characters are, um, well, some of the characters are Catholic, some of them are Ojibwe. some of them have no religion, and, and in sense of that too, I like the fact that they all got along harmoniously, sometimes with some amusing conflicts. But, um, you know, traditional Catholic, Catholics don't really follow the, um, you know, these type of prescriptions, which are still in Islam itself. I mean, they're in Islam, but they're also in Christianity. But Christianity, like I find it very strange the way I've seen this so many times where like there'll be like a young Christian couple. Maybe they're like 18 or 20 and they decide to get married and everybody freaks out. It's like, oh, my God, you're so young. Why are you getting married? You know, I can't I can't understand that. You know, they they, they feel so bad for them. But it's that same. But another per- couple in their church decides they're going to just move in together. They're like oh well, they probably shouldn't do that but it's no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, kind of
0: backwards there.
1: <laughs> yeah it's like it's a disaster that they got married at 20 and I I have a like one of my uh, good friends of mine I've worked with for years I mean I think he got married 18 I mean he had his high school sweetheart met her at 16 they were married at 18 now they have like seven kids he's makes well over a hundred thousand dollars a year they're a very successful family and seem very happy I mean they're very uh, Christian family, and um, you know, but nothing really bad happened to him. He's having a great time with all his kids, and you know, he didn't kill, go broke or anything. So, I, I, it's 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 frustrating because I think this was actually. I, I know you're very familiar with uh, e. Michael Jones's work, and I mean, he suggests that a lot of this kind of sexual liberation that was introduced into our culture was really partly there to um, undermine families and to stop families from happening so that um, I, I think so that they could influence the cult. I mean the best way to continue a culture to, con- to pass on values is from parent to child I mean nothing I think beats that and um, once you take that away or you l- so much limit the number of children a family can have because they don't get married till like they're 40 um, it's a good way to you know tear apart a culture slowly if you've got the patience
0: yeah that's true well i think that's related to an issue that comes up in your book when the main character uh, vince uh, has a beloved grandfather who's in an old folks home and then of course when covid causes the lockdowns it makes it really hard for him or anyone else to visit him and so his grandfather ends up being kind of locked up in solitary confinement for several months Um, and That actually is related to the issue of uh, marriage and and sexuality being limited to marriage, because when uh, when sexuality is limited to marriage, that causes the energy in sexuality then gets turned into these family relationships, and so people have very intense relationships Mm. with their entire families, including extended families, and that becomes the basis of social life, and that's actually kind of the normal thing for most people in most cultures throughout history and now we're in this weird liberal quote unquote society that focuses on the individual freedom to do anything you want uh, and that of course that would be hindered if you had children so people are encouraged to run around uh, kind of gratifying themselves or seeking fame fortune or whatever they want um, in their youth rather than um, kind of sacrificing that individual desire to form a family and so we end up with a culture where people don't take care of family members real well um children on the one hand are you know dumped in daycare at six weeks when really they need to be breastfed on on demand and mm-hmm. uh, held close to human skin almost 24 7 365 for a couple of years at least and so the and that leads to a situation where the old people too are not taken care of and the vince's uh, grandfather in in that old folks home, you know, really is kind of a a sad figure. He's he's uh I think he's Ojibwe, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. And and so he's and his he's been kind of abandoned by his uh, his son Vince's father, who has fearfully you know embraced the mainstream white culture and kind of denied his Indian heritage. Uh, and so this this poor guy, you know, just he's he just dumped in the old folks home. And now in Islamic culture, one of the first things you'll hear. Uh, about, you know, Western culture is they'll, they'll admire various things about Western culture, but they are horrified for the most part by the existence of old folks homes. That is, mm. it's a, it's shameful not to take care of your elderly parents and grandparents. You know, that's your job is to do that. Just like it's, it's, that's, that's the best thing you can do in life is to take care of somebody in your family who needs help. And so the highest role is the role of the mother who takes care of the helpless infant. And then any caregivers who would take care of the old folks would be like the most valued people. And this is something our culture doesn't get. And I I think, you know, the feminists uh, seem to think that it's it's terrible for women to be valued as caregivers and mothers and and people who would lead, you know, the the caretaking of older people. But I think that's actually uh, that's a sexist and anti-woman notion because what's, mm-hmm. you know, they're, what what they 're doing is they 're trying to tell women that to be any good in this world and to be worth anything, you have to embrace the male role. You have to go out and compete with men on their own turf, and then you 're doing something useful. but if you do something that is you know uh, is feminine or in the woman 's side of things that's that 's worthless so they 're actually accepting this nonsensical you know male dominated you know pro male pro masculine value system. And so these poor women who have about, on the average, one-thirtieth the testosterone of the average men, have to go out and compete with these testosterone-crazed cra- guys uh, and of course the women are usually too sensible. Women are much smarter at social relations than men are, so they're <laughs> usually too sensible to sacrifice everything to try to climb up the the, the hierarchy <laughs> and, uh, mm-hmm. uh, so so I think that that kind of critique of the sexual the sex relations in western culture coming out of the Muslim world makes a lot of sense. And I think you share those values in the, in the book. We really do see how at so many levels, this individualistic Western culture is uh, is messing with people. And, and the tra- the traditional elements that would hold people together, like Vince loving his grandfather and wanting to take care of him, wanting to get him out of the old folks home and you know, bring him home and take care of him uh, are, you know, in, in tension with this aspect of, of kind of liberal uh western culture and that liberal western culture then kind of goes crazy and becomes anti-liberal that is anti-freedom with its insane covid restrictions right so there's something about liberalism is imploding and muslims and other people who are linked to traditional culture can see that but most people seemingly can't
1: yeah i'd agree with everything pretty much you said there um it's actually shocking too i know a um, survey they've done with like women who um particularly who become lawyers, you know, become very high-powered, $500-an-hour lawyers, time they're 30, they all want to quit, (laughs) you know, even though they're making $500 an hour. Um, And and a lot of times they quit, and the first thing they want to do is go raise a family. And it's not to say that that's all women should do by any means, though it is interesting when you just look at it biologically, that um, how much of a woman's body is designed for raising a child compared to a male's body, you know, it's like two little balls and that's about it. You know, women, it's, they got the breast, the womb, everything going there. So it's, it's, um, you know, biologically obvious. But, and then you got, you know, people like J.K. Rowling. I mean, I'm a fan of different novelists and, you know, she, I don't know how many children she has, three or so. I mean, she raised three children and still managed to uh, <laughs> become the best-selling novelist of, human history, I think. I don't think anyone sells more books than her. Um, and it's kind of funny because there's a famous line where she, um, her child came up to her and asked her, Mommy, you know, if you had to choose between writing your books or having us, what would you choose? <laughs> she said, Well, I'd choose you, of course, but I'd be a little grumpy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you know, but she obviously didn't have to choose. But yeah, I, I mean, personally, I have, I have firsthand experience with the, the, the whole scene with the grandfather in the um, nursing home was basically uh, almost therapy for me dealing with the same situation with my own father um, that he um, was in one of those nursing homes at the exact same time, and I wasn't able to get him out because I didn't have um, I didn't have any say over it. It was kind of the same situation as Vince. I didn't have. Uh, Oh my goodness. Power of attorney. Um and then I mean there there's other complications with it which I think come into the whole medical situation that didn't exist in more traditional cultures even like forty, fifty years ago, that because of all the medication they give seniors, they can keep them alive. But their health deteriorates so much that, you know, some of them actually I would I've seen some of them that I don't know if some people could care for them in their own home. They have, they're have they like basically on life support almost. It's And it's very sad the way that um, they, they're pumping them full of all these drugs that just reduce the symptoms but don't improve their health. And it was almost better, I think, in the past where if they were going to – if you didn't give them all that medication – they died earlier and in a much more dignified state. They could still remember their name and go to the bathroom. You know what I mean? Like, okay, maybe they had a heart attack and died. In some ways, maybe that was better than keeping them alive for 20 years in a semi-vegetated state or, you know, where they've become so bedridden and um, needing full-time nursing care. So. You know, that's, that's just another factor that I think complicates it. And maybe in other cultures, they don't depend on the pharmaceutical system as much to um, put their parents and grandparents in that situation. But it, it, to go back to what you said before, I think, too, one of the big reasons we have people in these nursing homes is because they don't have grandchildren. And that's been proven really well. If you want to talk about a real liberal guy, it's Malcolm Gladwell. But even in his book, um, have you ever read The Outlier by um, Malcolm? Gladwell? Uh, yeah,
0: yeah, I actually read that not too long ago.
1: And, okay, so and I yeah. mean Malcolm's on the other side of the fence from us, but he, he has a lot of great stuff to uh, learn from him. And you know that for, I don't know if you remember the uh, Italian community he has right in the beginning of the book. I think it's like the first chapter. I'm trying to remember the name. Of yeah, the they're
0: name. in Pennsylvania.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And they were curious because these people, they were living quite long. They they lived, at, I think, eight, 20, 40 years longer on average than the average American. And they rarely had heart attacks and they rarely had the serious health complications that was, you know, widespread. Um, I, I can't remember the date on this. It was like 1960s, 70s, 80s, before uh, people were being along with different types of beta blockers and stuff but anyways you know they went in there and they wanted to know well, why are these this this large this fairly sized italian community living longer than everybody else and it wasn't because of their diet and their diet was as far as they could tell wasn't a very good diet and it wasn't they were all smokers i think which is i've lived in italy and especially before the european union took over i mean everyone was smoking like crazy um and I think
0: they probably still do. And they, they drink, they drink the vino too.
1: Yeah, I, didn't, I didn't, didn't find <laughs> it as big as I expected the vino, but uh, yeah, they. But you know, but yeah. So, anyways, but the big factor they found with that community was was that they had big families, usually all living under the same roof, and that that's what was extending their lives, is because as the parents grew older, they would help take care of the children and the grandchildren and the grandchildren and that gave them more reason to live and seeing seeing this community grow and i know with the blue zone studies which have gone all over the world trying to figure out how, why do some people cultures produce more centurions and others and the number one reason was was how many children they had and then in particularly in women too they found lower breast cancer rates and other such things but even with the entire culture so this whole argument, too, that, you know, oh, if I have children, it's going to take away from my life. I had a friend of mine, he, he never had any kids. He's like 60 and I asked yeah, he, he never had any kids. Oh, no, no, it kills all the downtime. <laughs>
0: <You know?
1: laughs> and, and now he's retired and he, he got bored of his downtime and went back to work. So I don't know. But, but I, I think the thing is, you know, statistically speaking, the more children you have, the longer you're going to live. So whatever time the children took up, you're going to get it back anyways.
0: Yeah, and that is because of the rich social relationships that, uh, as in Gladwell's book, um, these Italians with their big extended families and neighbors and uh, and local, mm. you know, meetings and clubs, they're all hanging out together. They all know each other. Everybody knows a lot of people, and they have these really kind of intense personal relationships with a whole lot of people. And, you know, when they eat a meal, they sit down and they talk for an hour or two. I think Lynn Dinh, uh, who's a Vietnamese-American writer, has been in exile for a while now back in vietnam i uh, just wrote a column about that about how in vietnam it's normal to sit there and and just you know go to a, a cafe or restaurant and talk for hours and hours he's described just talking for something like 10 or 12 hours in a restaurant uh, apparently with with strangers but but this is based on uh, you know what people do at home as they do have long conversations over meals and that's what those long lived people in uh, Pennsylvania, the Italian guys in Gladwell's book were also doing. I notice that's also what happens in Morocco. I spent a year living with my in-laws in Morocco in a household with, uh, what were there, like five or six people? Well, there was us and, and maybe four or five other permanent people, in it, and then maybe four more that were there more often than not. And that uh, experience was really uh, wonderful, and the best part about it was just hanging out and talking. You know, they have... Uh, three meals plus a kind of a the equivalent of British tea, which is actually a, a coffee hour in in Oujda, Morocco. So there's just all kinds of good, intense, con- enjoyable conversation. And then people drop in. So friends and relatives and cousins and uncles and so on are always dropping in for these various meals and and uh, and coffee time and stuff. There's a tremendous amount of really warm. Social interaction and people really are big parts of each other's lives. You know, there's Tons of this face-to-face stuff. In a way, I was, sometimes I almost think the COVID pandemic might have been created by this malign force that's trying to destroy these kinds of human relationships and do everything possible to mm-hmm. keep everybody apart from each other or to cover their faces. And stuff. Uh, it's it's almost like uh, there's you know there, there are uh, you know pe- people uh, who don't get. Any, uh, you know, get good maternal care when they're really young can grow up with a deficit where they can't really relate to other people, and it's almost as, li- as, as like there's some supercomputer that wants to do this to everybody on Earth and make them all like a feral mm-hmm. child in that respect. And it came up with this idea: Hey, what if we create this this uh, pandemic and then impose all these restrictions and force everybody to be basically in solitary confinement for a couple of years or longer? Um, I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm going. Uh, I'm getting. I'm exaggerating a little bit here. But yeah. well, well,
1: it's definitely. I mean, it was pretty obvious. Some of it, like you said, I think it backfired in some ways because I have to say it's been interesting. Um, the division that this has all caused is. I, I've met. I've had. Actually, I have more friends now, and more acquaintances, during the whole pandemic than I had before. Because it immediately just divided people up, and you immediately knew like people who were buying this it was hard to relate to them, and the people who weren't and they could be totally diverse um, occupations and religions and so forth, and we would, we would just resonate right away
0: yeah, yeah, I had that experience too, and it's one of the ways I could relate to your book was your book has this bakery as kind of a, a scene of COVID clamped down resistance. And, uh, you know, the the, the character, uh, Stephanie, the baker, is really pushing back against the COVID BS uh, and becomes kind of a, a hotbed in a place where people go and where these scenes in your book happen at that bakery. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and that, you know, during our two years of, of COVID madness here, which wasn't quite as bad as it was in Canada, still uh, the places where I used to hang out were all... You know, mask obligatory places, full of you know the people who were buying it. So I would mm-hmm. I bicycled seventeen miles to the cafe in in Richland Center, Wisconsin, uh, where they weren't requiring masks, and where indeed the people serving in the cafe were usually not. But pretty much hardly anybody in there was wearing masks. If somebody did, you'd, you know, he, he didn't bother them. Uh, but it was worth biking seventeen miles, and uh, mm-hmm. I even did round trips a few times. <laughs> Uh, to get to that place so yeah you really kind of knew who you you know who you can talk to and, and which uh, cafes are worth going to
1: mm-hmm. and i it, it's baffling to me and I, that, I think that comes back to even just the um, male-female relationships that um, kind of denigrated in our culture is that how many people were willing to go along with us and especially men i mean it was obviously denigrating to be forced to put this mask on and not go to work and it, the list you know went on and on of you know all the things that you could not do and how quickly they submitted to it and mm-hmm. um i i i can't help but think that maybe if they were i don't know it's hard to it's hard to say i, I, I but i think to some degree though too is like they don't have um You know, Dr. McDonald, he was, I don't know if you're familiar with him, Mark McDonald out in Los Angeles. He's he's been very outspoken about how he he thought this was to a large degree a result of loss of masculinity in our culture, that um, men just can't stand up to, um, they can't stand being shamed. I mean, I've been shamed so much in the last two years, especially when this started. I mean, I had people sending me hate mail and, telling me the weirdest things like i was killing children in bosnia because i was letting my son play at the playground it was just getting really bizarre uh, <laughs> i like I, I tried to have them explain the logic train on that one and they just walk away like i'm stupid and i'm like okay well, I, you know but um you know then that's what i had in the novel was stephanie was She's a very strong person who basically says, you know, I wasn't going to go along with this. And she kind of demanded that of Vince and the other males in the book. And um, I think that traditionally happens a lot, you know, where they kind of say the man's the head of the household. And sometimes it is and it isn't, you know. Um, I think because he has that responsibility of taking care of a wife, not so much that women need to be taken care of, but women need to take care of children. If they're taking care of children, then, you know, they that's a big load and they need to the help. And um, you know, to let your whole family enter uh, a dystopian totalitarian nightmare— I mean, if it's a kind of a tip. Well, it wasn't a tiptoe; everything changed in like one week. <laughs> you know, was, I, some people say it was a tiptoe. I don't think it was a tiptoe. It was a very quick switchover. And yeah, was yeah. How did that surprising. work? Was how a, many?
0: It was yeah. to be just a, just a week, a couple of weeks, or something to flatten the curve, and, and suddenly it was permanent.
1: Yeah, but the fact that people even went along with it for two weeks and, and then when they were told, you know, realized it was a lie and it was going to go on for longer. But I think that shows how they have done the groundwork for this for a long time in breaking down the social structures, getting people used to brainwashing, believing things, going along with the group, even though when they own eyes, tell them something different. So it's it's been a... Um, it, it, it's frustrating because this is not a left brain war in some ways. I mean, cause we got all the facts and figures and just in a lot of degree, that's very, very helpful and it's absolutely necessary. But this is more uh, a right brain war where people are, um, I think too led by their feelings and they can't handle a bit of uh, rejection from the tribe.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's more proof of Rene Girard's thesis that people are ultra mimetic. That is, we imitate the people around us and that can lead to trouble because we also are creatures of desire. And so we desire what other people have and and also what they desire. And so as we're all imitating each other's desires, of course, these desires clash. We want the same thing and you know, we start fighting over stuff. We start envying each other and that, tends to lead to chaos, and so Girard says that the thing that holds a society together typically has been resolving this war of all against all by having the entire group turn against some scapegoat, and basically lynching some marginal person, and then that re- memory of l- lynching someone, uh, it, which actually then calms everybody, because everybody suddenly is now calmed down mm-hmm. and back together in shared guilt. Uh, that memory becomes uh, a worship of the person they lynched as a pagan god, and so in pagan religion they essentially have this ritual every year, which memorializes the lynching, and they all, you know, they enshrine the lie that the person they lynched was was guilty and the scapegoat that you know carried off all the sins of the tribe or whatever, um, and so anyway, Gir- yeah, Gerard thinks Christianity is is the cure for this. But I, I would expand that to you know, the, the monotheistic tradition in general, uh, with mm-hmm. the Abraham and his son story, as well as the, to some extent the story of Jesus, uh, has has uh, flipped this and and put an end to that type of of paganism. Anyway, the, I think that that imitating and, and that mimetic quality, where people uh, kind of frantically imitate each other, really you know goes to town when you have these kinds of, of mass formation panics. Know, like we had after 9-11 when everybody was waving the flag and buying duct tape, you know, or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, with everybody buying toilet paper and, and then putting it or putting whatever on their face, you know, and just like everybody else, at that level of, of imitating everybody, is, as you say, it's not left brain, it's it's kind of deep in, in the ganglia or whatever the, the part of the brain is that controls those real primitive emotions.
1: And then if you don't have a family unit or a close social unit or whether it's a religious organization or church or mosque or whatever that you belong to where you have you know even if the rest of the world's going crazy if the people you care about aren't then you you can stay a little sane mm-hmm. and if they yeah. take that away then and they did they have a lot of power yeah they took it away before and they just rubbed it in when they you know they, they took away what they could through brainwashing and You know, um, liberalism, all this other nonsense that you know supposedly would produce more freedom for people. (laughs) I mean, this whole idea. I mean, it's it's funny because they were arguing for you know, liberalism is kind of free for all type thing, which is kind of crazy because I mean, we're free to do a lot of things. I can take a hammer and bang my toe, you know. No, no one's going to stop me, but it's not you know, it's not a good exercise of freedom. Um, so. I'm curious to know, too, like I I've, as far as I've seen with them, like, for example, Pakistan and so forth, that the Muslim world doesn't seem to have bought into the covid hysteria as much, especially if, if I have noticed like I did review all the videos and texts that you had sent me, and it did seem that most of them believe there is a real pandemic going on, but they don't seem to agree with the measures that were put in place to control it. Is that
0: kind of a joke? Yeah, I think that- I think that's true, and actually, you know, I'm I'm kind of halfway there myself. Like, if your character Stephanie at the beginning of the book, anyway, is saying, you know, there's no such thing as COVID; it's exactly the same as the flu, and then of course the uh, all of the authorities are telling us all that no, it's it's the black plague. <laughs> you know, uh, I'm I'm a, I'm a lot closer to Stephanie than to than to the authorities on that, but uh, I, I think that it, part, you know, I think the one thing that the dissident red pill world on this has kind of missed is that yeah it actually is a little worse than the flu and i think the vaccines are pretty probably pretty bad too obviously a lot worse than what they've told us and uh the real thing that we probably should have focused on right away was where it came from because it's so obvious and the evidence is is so easily demonstrable that this came out of a u.s presumably neocon biological warfare attack on china and iran and i don't know if you've read ron Ans's ebook on that which is the best kind of you know the col- collection of the evidence pointing at that uh, so anyway I, yeah I, th- I think it's 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 a bioweapon and it's an economic bioweapon that's not it wasn't designed to actually kill huge numbers of people it's designed to cause enough trouble that the targeted economies will feel compelled to take these kinds of idiotic or extreme measures. I mean, it's, but they, they do feel they have to take some kind of measures. And so that I, I think that's where it came from. And I think that the, the COVID dissident world has somewhat been pushed towards the side of denying that there is any medical issue whatsoever with COVID, uh, in part, perhaps, to obscure where it actually came from.
1: With that, I guess my big question with that would be, if we look at the death rates around the world for 2020, they weren't anything unexpectedly higher than, actually, they were lower in most countries than the previous three years. So if there was a new deadly disease ravaging the world, why did not more people die? And then, especially, too, when we consider how much died from the actual
0: measures, well i think you know if if you rely on the official statistics which of course is is another question um, i forget what i know the official accounts of the world statistics supposedly is that there have been a lot of excess deaths and it's unclear what percentage of those to attribute to the collateral damage from the covid control measures right the economic damage above all Uh, but I'm pretty sure that yeah that I forget what the like I think the oh what was it the the New York Times uh, recently reported the supposed what WHO whoever their st- official statistics of I think uh, like 15 million excess deaths uh, worldwide uh since the beginning of 2020 and I think the official estimate that they cited was something like uh it's they passed the the magic six million number uh, several months ago. So maybe it's up to six and a half million by now. So they're, what they're saying officially is that there have been six and a half million uh, COVID deaths and a total of 15 million excess deaths, which actually means that the COVID control measures killed considerably more people than COVID did, just based on their own statistics. But that is what they claim. And they also claim that here in the United States, we've had, I think, 1,300,000 uh, excess deaths since the beginning of 2020. And presumably, of those, something well over a million of them are directly due to COVID. So, those are the official claims of the authorities. And but that's I'm not going sure.
1: From 2020 to now versus if you just look at the year 2020, because mm-hmm. we got to remember once 2021 hit, they introduced the vaccine and mm-hmm. we were starting to see the repercussions of a lot of those collateral damages. But, you know, we just look at the year 2020, as far as I seen, every country in the world either had the same expected deaths or lower except for the United States, which I would blame principally on the use of remdesivir.
0: Yeah, there could very, that's, I mean, I, I'll have to go back and check these mainstream stories. I, I had thought that they were claiming uh, big excess deaths in 2020 as well as 2021, but I can I can go back and check. And I've being a typical U.S.-centric American, um, I may have also been, uh, by, uh, I may have been deluded or uh, con- confused a little bit by the fact that, yeah, we did have a lot of excess deaths, it turns out, in 2020 here in the United States. But maybe mm-hmm. you're right. Maybe it didn't, wasn't worldwide. Yeah, the
1: states, I mean, Canada had the lowest death rate for the last previous three years. And we also saw that it was 80% of the deaths were in nursing homes with people well over the age of 80. It was, it was comical if it wasn't so tragic i mean even the first person who apparently died from covid in our city it was his daughter literally was quoted in the newspaper as having sat at his bedside for three days and she was so relieved that he didn't suffer any respiratory problems Mm. you know so they were just it was just it was the normal well even with all the things they did, it was still pretty much, I think they probably killed a lot of seniors 6, 7, 12 months earlier than they probably would have died. But they were principally just dying like they usually die. And if they had a positive PCR test, and I, I feel too if the test, well, I mean, obviously the test is so bunk anyways, but if these people actually do have a, a sign of the virus in them, the, the the variance and the symptoms is... Very strange for something that's supposed to be so deadly. Like my father had positive PCR test, and he just had a he just kind of little cold flu season symptoms for two days, and he bounced back. My mother at the same time she ended up in the hospital with pneumonia. So I mean, and my dad was 92 at the time. You know, so I'm mm-hmm. I'm not convinced personally myself that there was or is any real um viral pandemic at all i i'm i I, and if there is it would be so insignificant compared to all the harm they've caused through the the collateral damage of the lockdowns even the masking which is quite harmful in so many ways and then of course the vaccine which we're now seeing and i was so grateful i know we're getting near the end of the hour i just wanted to say i was so grateful to read all the material you sent from various muslim organizations that um, I love the way some of them were describing the vaccine. They
0: described it as filth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you
1: know, it sounds like you have a word in Arabic that, uh, y yeah.
0: yeah, well, well, there's Najas is one kind of uh, a, a ritual uncleanness. I forget what that would be a translation of. Um, but yeah, it's, it's there, there are certain kind of strong expressions like that.
1: <laughs> yeah, and it was completely understandable. I mean, like, they summed it up pretty well on that. Wow, I wish I had it here. But, you know, they were describing, you know, what's typically in, you know, vaccines. You got like, um, monkey blood and, you know, pig entrails. I mean, the list is pretty weird of stuff. Fetal tissue. Um, they even referred to it as, uh, one of the, uh, I think it was the South African Muslim organization you had sent. Mm-hmm. They call it, uh, vaccine witchcraft. You know? But at the same time, the articles are very scientific, and they they cite it, you know, the major research coming out that I, it's so black and white that these vaccines are ineffective and they're not safe, and that they're quite dangerous. It's, it's just how dangerous they are is the question. But um, so I was I was very I don't know if that's the entire Muslim world who sees it that way or not. They, they seem to treat it as you know a poison like alcohol, and and um, I was. I was just very, very happy to see that because you don't see Christian churches putting out that kind of material.
0: Well, unfortunately, I think that the stuff I sent you probably uh, doesn't represent the majority of the biggest Muslim institutions Mm -hmm. uh, because they tend to be subservient to governments. And then those governments are looking out for their own interests, which means trying to stay on the right side of the empire and the W.H.O., um, and, I mean, there each you know, every country's experience with this, of course, has been somewhat different. But anyway, yeah, long story short is that, yeah, I think the, the Muslim world has probably done a little better than what's left of the Christian world uh, on this. Mm-hmm. But unfortunately, um, there are a lot of the same kinds of problems that have crept into the Muslim world and particularly corrupt governments. Um, mo- almost all Muslim countries, with a few exceptions, are subservient to the kind of imperial organizations, the WHO and things like that. Uh, Iran is the one that's still uh, quite sovereign. And Iran is interesting because they had, uh, they, they have officially accused the United States of attacking them with COVID as a biological weapon. Uh, mm-hmm. And they filed that <laughs> complaint at the UN and everything. And, of course, the Western media has totally ignored it because if they published it, uh, if they publicized that and people looked into the evidence for it they would discover that it's true and we would have a huge problem on our hands but iran actually had they had pretty serious problems with with COVID. they uh perhaps they were attacked with an extra strong strain there seemed to be different strains of it and it, it jumped from com from from wuhan straight to Qom, which is the holy city and the home of the mullahs who are the uh, part of the islamic government there that the u.s doesn't like and so Qom was hit first. It, it miraculously went there. No Chinese in Calm. Every place else it went from China at first, you know, went to places that, that had a lot of Chinese people like uh, northern Italy, where there are uh, millions or huge numbers of Chinese workers. And Calm, there's no Chinese connection, but it's the site of the theocracy in Iran. And boom, a whole bunch of the top people in Iran got it and many of them died. Uh, so uh, Iran takes it very seriously. Uh, even though they're fully sovereign, and that's one of the many reasons that I, again, I I think you're you're right that it's been grossly exaggerated, and and the remedies are many times you know, generally worse than the disease, and it is it's it's like a it's like a flu, but it, the mortality rate is maybe four times a bad flu season, but that's mainly concentrated at the higher age levels and people with the comorbidities. So it's really not the end of the world, and these purported remedies don't help. The masks are obviously useless. The vaccines turn out to be overall worse than useless. <laughs> so uh, anyway, that's that's kind of my take, which is probably pretty close to that of the majority of the COVID dissidents in the Muslim world. Um, and uh, I'd it, be curious
1: to know if in Iran, if they were using, um, they, they overreacted with ventilation, too, because that was a, I know in Italy, the, um, the German German pulmonary expert, he had gone to Italy during the COVID situation there and he was just shocked. He said, you're just putting these people on ventilators too soon. The ventilators are killing them, you know, because they got them so scared and they were so scared about aerosols going in the air. So, um, And then we saw that in New York where it was like one hospital was like empty and the next hospital was like every floor got someone on uh, (laughs) a ventilator and so, yeah. it, it, again, it's it, it, it's hard to know how much it was possibly just people overreacting because of the fear of it and then over-medicalizing them too quickly.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, there probably could have, there easily could have been some of that in Iran, too. Uh, uh, there are so many ways that the purported cures for this were much worse than the relatively mild disease. And, yeah. Uh, I think we, can, we should all be able to agree on that at this point, although, unfortunately, maybe... <laughs> <laughs> There's still some, some folks who haven't figured that out yet. So your novel would be a good read, I think, even for people who are not on our wavelength at all. I mean, I, I could imagine a relatively open-minded person who has sort of bought into this, but maybe not 100%, something sort of like the main character, Vince, at the beginning of the book, mm-hmm. reading this and still enjoying the book. That is, the is, char- you've drawn the characters with enough autonomy you know, following the Bakhtinian dialogism principle, let your characters kind of be themselves and speak for themselves. That I think, regardless of somebody's position on these issues, they would really find the book uh, enjoyable and and, and thought provoking. Have, no, you, have you had any reactions I... from people from, from like the the blue pill people on this?
1: Um, that's a good question. I, I haven't. No, I haven't. Uh, I, can't, I can't say. I've. Uh, I mean, it's only been out for two months, so I don't think it's maybe um, reached to them at such a level yet I, I know a lot of people who are on the fence who work have read this and i, I can tell just from the way they talk to me now that they've they've they, they've gotten off that electric fence and they're you know they're still hanging near it but they're on the other side now on our side um yeah i i was hoping with this like my my main goal was because everyone's sick of hearing about covid that this had to be an entertaining story both character-wise <laughs> and plot-wise um, and
0: it is it's, it's like who would think that i would want to plunge into this you know canadian dystopia in the middle of COVID? <laughs> but i did i yeah. couldn't i couldn't stop reading
1: and it was fun too because i mean when i wrote the first version there was only three characters and it. it was stephanie vince and they were already married and yamamoto the uh, police officer that was it. That was like, uh, and then it kind of got bigger from that. And once I put a hockey team in, you know, because he had to do a Canadian hockey team, which is mm-hmm. the main reason why there's more male characters in this than female. But, um, you know, all these characters just started coming up, and I was um, was very pleasantly surprised with the diversity and how alive they became and real to me. And and in some ways too, it kind of reflected my life uh, pre COVID and after. Because pre COVID, I I spent most of my time just with my family. And uh, when COVID hit, I, my social circle expanded dramatically, and I, like it did in the novel.
0: Huh. Well, so much for those people who wanted to lock us down and keep us away from other people and destroy our social lives.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, maybe it was, you know... God kind of saying, you know, introverts like us, may, I don't know if you're an introvert, maybe you are, I don't know, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty I, much. I yeah, you know, he's like, oh, you know, I'm going to make it, make it a law that you have to be an introvert. Well, I'm not going to do that then. <laughs> you <know? laughs> there you go. <laughs> just to rebel. I know a lot of people, they said, I never hugged any. I would never hug people that I didn't, you know, that weren't older than my, I haven't known longer than my son or my daughter. And they're like, I hug everyone now just to rebel.
0: <laughs> All right. Well, let's keep hugging people to rebel. I think that's a, a, one of the good sides, the silver linings to the COVID cloud. Well, thank you so much, John Nanley, author of Much Ado About Corona, a dystopian love story, a fantastic novel, the great Canadian corona novel. I highly recommend it. I don't think anybody will be disappointed. So thanks, John. Good work. Back at the next hour. we Ray McGinnis, another Canadian freedom fighter.